This is the Balancing Act by Security Compass, your guide to going fast while staying safe in today's digital world. On part one of Leaders in Product Security, Rohit Sethi, CEO of Security Compass, is joined by Steve Lipner. Steve Lipner is the Executive Director of SafeCode, a nonprofit organization focused on software assurance. He was the creator of the Windows Security Push and the creator and longtime leader of the Microsoft Security Development Lifecycle, SDL. Steve has more than a half century of experience in computer and network security as a researcher, engineer, and development manager. He's the chair of the United States Government's Information Security and Privacy Advisory Board and a member of the National Academy of Engineering and the National Cybersecurity Hall of Fame. Hey, thanks, Steve. Thanks for joining. Uh, I, I've always enjoyed talking to you. And to be honest, it's an honor to, to be able to talk to you. Um, I have a few questions here to talk about you know, software and product security. So why don't we get started? How did you get into the field of software security? Well, so I started working on, on computer security in, in late 1970. So I celebrated my 50th anniversary last year. But back then, we actually assumed that given specifications, developers would produce correct and secure code. We did some mostly unsuccessful attempts at formal verification, but mostly we assumed that the problem was, was writing down what the software was supposed to do rather than make it actually do that. The current challenge of software security didn't really manifest until the 1990s. And I got involved for real after I joined Microsoft in 1999. 2001, I was responsible for both the Microsoft Security Response Center that dealt with uh, discovered problems in software security and the Secure Windows Initiative that was our proactive effort to try to fix those problems. So I was in a great spot to see what was going wrong and to try to do something about it. Wow, that's, that's a pretty amazing background. Very accomplished. 50, um, 50 years isn't something a lot of people talk about. Yeah. <laughs> You, you, you've seen so much. So maybe one thing I want to I hone in on is you were in Microsoft in 2002 when Bill Gates sent that now very famous trustworthy computing memo. For people who are unfamiliar, can you tell us what the memo was and what led to it? So the memo, uh, the, Bill had written a, a famous memo in 1996 or so um, committing the company to the internet. And that was, I may have the year wrong, but that was a, a big deal and viewed as such by the industry. Um, and he would do that infrequently when he felt that something really was an important uh, trend or change that, that Microsoft had to uh, pay attention to. In 2000, uh, actually it was early 2002, um, Bill released an, an email um, saying that, you know, basically trustworthy computing was our direction for the future and that we'd make a commi major commitment to delivering software that protected customers' security and privacy. Talked about the levels of reliability or trust that you'd associate with, in with infrastructures like, like water or power. Um, the release of that, of that memo was largely an aftermath some pretty well publicized security failures in 2000. There was an intrusion into our corporate network and the code red and NIMDA worms that people may be familiar with. 
um, and also the global concerns about security in the aftermath of September 11th. Craig Mundy, who was then one of our chief technology officers and the late Howard Schmidt, our chief security officer, were really instrumental in working with Bill to convey the need for the uh, trustworthy computing memo and, and get his buy-in to do it. Wow. That's, that's amazing. I, just so crazy how something like that had such a big impact. So maybe I'll get your thoughts on that. How, how do you think the memo changed the industry? So there's a sort of a fun, it wasn't much fun at the time, but a fun story. When the memo was released, one of my friends at Gartner uh, responded with something like, Microsoft has this enormous security problem. And, res and in response, they've issued a press release. Um, so initially, there was some skepticism. But about two weeks after the memo came out, um, we started an effort with the Windows division that I had proposed and sold to make a pretty dramatic change in our software security. We shut, shut down all our development. We trained about 8,500 developers in a week. And we spent two months doing code reviews, security testing, threat modeling, running tools, finding and fixing bugs with the entire staff of the Windows division, about 8,500 people. Uh, that was what we call the security push. It was visible outside Microsoft and it convinced a lot of people, including my friend at Gartner, that we were actually serious about all this stuff. Um, a number of companies talked to us, watched what we did, and as it became evident that it had worked, some of them signed on to take similar approaches. Of course, our initiative also provided opportunities for a variety of tool vendors and consultants um, in the industry to help us and provided really an opportunity for, for them to, uh, to step up and provide third-party help to us and, and others in the industry. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I feel like I probably wouldn't be in this role if that that memo didn't come out. And, you know, I mean, it's quite possible that something else could have happened that, that had the same effect, but it's hard to imagine. It's a twisty path. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I, realize, I realize we not only, we not only affected sort of the big companies, you know, that competed with or complemented Microsoft in the industry, but also, you know, a lot of smaller entities in the industry, making tools, doing, doing consulting, um, finding and reporting vulnerabilities. A lot of different aspects that uh, that probably derive from that in some measure. So that, that's a good segue. In, in recent years, and you know, especially say in the past few months, um, things like the Solar Winds breach has put a lot of attention on uh, the software supply chain, how, how secure are products, and that's kind of one of the things that that has piqued the interest of, of a lot of people on on this whole emerging field of product security. I mean, it's been around for a long time, but I think that there's a lot more people paying attention to it. So what's your view of product security? How does it differ and how is it similar to enterprise security? Well, I mean, there's really an overlap. You have to, you have to build, you have to build your software securely. It has to have the right security features. My co-author, Michael Howard talks about secure features and security features and you've got to build both. And then you also have to do what, achieve what we, we call software integrity. Basically, 
protecting your development environment, protecting um, your the the you know providing measures to to make sure that that downstream customers can assure themselves that they're getting the software you intended to release to them. That's mostly just about about code signing. And there's also um, the the supply chain aspect. Basically, if you're using software that's provided by others, um, how do you assure yourself that that it's secure? Um, I um, I posted a little note on on supply chain on the on the SafeCode blog a few weeks ago. Talks about some, my sort of take on on all the aspects of that, but it really is is a complementary thing. You have to have enterprise security or IT security to protect your development environment. And then you have to have secure development to actually deliver software effectively that it's worth protecting. And, and customers really have to pay attention to both too. They have to protect their own, um, they have to protect their own enterprises and they have to convince themselves that the software they're getting is, is secure or developed securely. Yeah, that's an interesting point, right? How, how can customers know that the software they're getting is secure, or at least have some sense of how secure it is? And I'd say it's, you know, from for at least from our experience, having talking talked to a bunch of enterprises who procure software regularly, there's some of them who have a depth of experience in this area, but but not a lot. And their compliance standards and these sorts of things uh, that are generally, again, maybe more perimeter kind of enterprise security focused, uh, things like security of the, of the infrastructure. But the problem is a, a lot more pronounced for a consumer. If you're a consumer that's going to just go buy something and plug it into your network, I mean, how could you possibly know if that product is built by a company that takes product security seriously? Should we, as an industry, address this? And if so, how? When I was still at Microsoft and, and still the chairman of the SafeCode board, uh, we started on the release of something that we informally called the, the buyer's guide. And I think that's a, a guide for, for customers to, uh, to assess what they're getting, probably more focused on you know, business or enterprise customers than on consumers. For consumers, you know, a thing you can do that actually ought to be possible if you're downloading a piece of software, um, look on the supplier's website and see if there's a way to report a vulnerability to them. Okay, mm. and and if 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 your vendor doesn't have some visible way to report a discovered security vulnerability and get the vendor's attention and get them to fix it, then that's probably a vendor you don't want to do business with uh, because they aren't even taking the basic step of making it easy to tell them they've made a mistake and, and fix it. If you're an enterprise or, or maybe even a consumer, you can look to see, okay, does my vendor document what they're doing about a secure development process? Maybe, maybe you don't, maybe if you're, if you're a consumer, um, you may not even be able to, you know, you may not have the, the technical background to understand everything they're saying, but at least if they say they're doing something about it, um, that that'll give you at least some measure of confidence that they're uh, they're confident enough uh, and focused enough on on doing secure development 
to put something out there uh, that talks about their approach. And that's better than not. They could just be misleading you. That gets them into consumer protection problems if they do that. That's a measure. We've tried over the years um, doing things like, um, like standards and certifications, but those really haven't caught on a lot of, a lot of problems they pose. So, so it's a hard space, but there are things you can do to get some level of insurance. That's interesting. You know, to me, it seems like it's the logical step that will eventually happen is some kind of designation. Like we're already seeing this in the enterprise space and the, you know, industrial controls, you have the ISA secure designation mm-hmm. that shows mm-hmm. the product is secure. Now these days with PCI, right, you have the software security framework and you have approved vendors that have gone through it. It seems to me like it's just a matter of time before that stuff gets generalized yeah. a little bit. You know, what what do you think is sort of the role eventually of compliance and in, in security and and product, software security and product security. Well, you make a good point about about PCI, and that's a that's a standard, particularly for the uh, for the uh, um, for the, the financial and payment industry. Um, there's also something called, and get this right, IEC six two four four three for the process control industry, um, and that's that has some some uptake. Um, and our safe code member Siemens is especially supportive of that. Uh, so there are some things out there. In terms of in terms of compliance, it's really easy. You know, once you start talking about compliance, it's really easy to to go in in a wrong direction. You know, the fundamental aspect of of software security is that the software developers have to integrate secure development into development. If you, if you wait till the end and then run tests and say, oh, gee, you know, here are all these things that you didn't do and give them back to the developers, the developer's natural inclination is to say, I have to ship, you know, that product was done. Why are you telling me this now? So really, you know, so really the, the big thing, you know, that and we, we tried to do this, we did this at, at Microsoft, is to say, okay, here are the things we want you to do as you're doing development. Right. And then we'll provide you with, with advice or guidance for how to do those correctly. But you, the developers, have to do it as you go. And then, you know, in that kind of a scenario, uh, compliance can be verifying the tool runs, verifying the entries in the bug tracking database, verifying that... Uh, that if there were documents or, or, or artifacts produced, they were actually produced. And that can be quick and efficient. So when the software is done, it complies and you're ready and ready to and you're ready to ship. And that's really that can really be a pretty efficient mechanism. I, I did some consulting a, a few years ago with a company that um, was trying to build a software security program. The way they were doing it have their developers develop the software and then their security team ran the tools, ran the static analysis, did the fuzzing, you know, and handed this pile of bugs back to the developers after they thought they were done. Yeah. And that, that wasn't a happy situation. Um, with at getting the developers to build secure software as they're building software, it's really the only scalable, efficient way to do something like that. Yeah, it's interesting. You and I have talked about this before, but what you just described sounds like 
probably 90% of the industry, right? Kind of maybe not the security team is scanning it, but the developers uh, may have it built integrated into their, their CI CD pipeline, but it's still scanning, you know, at the end of the day, even if it's quote unquote shift left. So uh, hoping that that changes over time as, as greater awareness comes about. And speaking of which you've alluded to safe code. So can you tell us a bit about the history of safe code? Um, so SafeCode was created about 15 years ago. Um, I actually keep saying I'm going to look up exactly when it was founded, but I, I, I always forget to do that. And it started with a focus on policymakers and governments, but it evolved pretty quickly to focus on sharing best practices for security among the members and with the community at large. The SafeCode members are bound by a mutual non-disclosure agreement so we're able to share information pretty candidly about what works, what doesn't, how to tackle tough problems, issues we've seen coming up. And, um, and then the membership has evolved over time. Companies have got, come and gone, but we've retained a great group of members, a core of members committed to software security with a pretty wide range of challenge and challenges and experiences. And, and we... We share practices internally, um, meet informally on a variety of topics, and then we also provide to the public, basically to anybody in the industry who goes to our website, a variety of resources that help help organizations create their own secure development processes. I think you you answered what would be my next question, which is, you know, what is SafeCode doing to help uh, the industry achieve better software security. Sounds like opening up a lot of these things is, has been helpful. Anything else you wanted to add to that? Yeah, a lot of guidance, a lot of resources. Uh, there's free training on our website that we you just, you, you know, anybody can go go and, and take that training um, and helps them get to some basic level of, of competence in, in some of the key secure development areas. Um, we have some documents that are useful. We found that creating documents as a group took longer than we were happy with. So recently we've done more focus on shorter blog style posts. We, we issued a batch of blog posts on, on fuzzing about last year that have had very good uptake across the industry. We have some folks working together now um, on the issues that are going to be associated with the transition to, uh, to post-quantum encryption. Basically, encryption can stand up to a quantum um, analysis by a quantum computer, um, and but that transition is going to be a big deal for a lot of, of software teams across the industry. Oh yeah, definitely something we've been talking about for a long time, but it seems to be turning into reality. Yeah, at least the post-quantum algorithms are turning into reality, and yeah. that's going to be a big transition for the industry. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, Hey, Steve, uh, I appreciate the insight. So much to learn from you. I, I hope everybody who listens to this is understands how valuable it is and hearing from one of the pioneers. Is there anything else that you wanted to share or say to the listeners? No, no. I mean, well, just a couple things. For, for developers, uh, pay attention to security as you, as you go. It's not somebody else's problem. It's yours. Yeah. And for, uh, for customers, look for indications that... Uh, that your suppliers are actually doing that. Great advice. All right. Thanks so much, Steve. Appreciate it. Thanks, Roy. Have a, have a, have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. 
Want to learn about what Security Compass has to offer? Check out securitycompass.com slash demo for a free demo today. Want more of the Balancing Act? Be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts for more episodes. Thank you.